Welcome to Machine Learning. And this week has been fairly interesting. Um, been doing quite a bit of podcasting and coding on my GitHub, learning more on Python. And uh, just that Python is an amazing language, the way it's constructed, especially with list when you're dealing with lots of data transformation. It's it's really the best language I've seen so far. And uh, it's, I could kind of see with PowerShell, how they were doing its uh, transformations um, using uh, uh, pipes and attempting to try to get um, a similar type of uh, capability. But uh, uh, Python definitely, with its NumPy and uh, Pandas, libraries plus all the other libraries that can be used for data cleaning and transformation are just they're just very powerful and uh, so this week what I did was again continue to work on that word vectorization and uh, um, so what I did is uh, take my sentences tokenize the sentences and then vectorize them uh, using NLTK. And then once I vectorize the sentences, then cosine them and then use the cosine against a sentence and looked at the scoring on it. So I wrote, there was a little uh, code, piece of code I got off Stack Overflow that was really good that uh, pivoted the unpivoted the uh, data frame that was the result of the dot product and uh, and then I was able to um, I was able to get the scores in a array and then I cycled through each one of the elements in the array and looked for uh, scores, sentences with scores greater than 10%. Now these were big sentences, and um, uh, and so I was, you know, I wasn't figuring on 50% matches, big around 10% match, and uh, it just leads me to believe that Google is really quite amazing how their algorithm seems to find the data that you're looking for but you know that may be due to the fact that they've got such large data sets <coughs> that they can uh, use some level of, of popularity to figure out what people are searching for when they look for certain keywords and based on uh, that feedback uh, they're able to get higher relevant data to the user. I don't know if that's the why their search engine is so good, but there's uh, it's really quite amazing when you type in a sentence and uh, it, it finds similar content. And that content isn't irrelevant. So that, you know, it's uh, really amazing. But uh, using this cosine, 
algorithm. <clears throat> I set up a um, just a couple of paragraphs. I got got a couple of paragraphs from my website, and then put it in. And then they have a two sentence or sentence tokenizer, and so it looks to see what you know punctuation that could indicate that there it's a sentence or a question. Probably looking for declarative sentences and then uh, sets that up in the list of sentences and then you can uh, then randomly take one of the sentences and do a search against it. And then when you get a mate you get a matrix back and the, the, the sentence that you're searching on will return uh, a one because that's a perfect match and then the, the other sentences will be a probability of a match. So these probabilities are very important because they can be used as you know, recommendations. So uh, um, I did get it working, and I, you know, I'm still pondering about it. One one uh, one possibility is to use a reinforcement learning to figure out all the possible pathways and then look at each probability as a reward. So it, it, uh, it could learn um, uh, based on, on well, where you do comparisons between different sentences. So you use some level of permutation. Um, so a permutation would be a factorial. And uh, so if you had seven factorial, that's seven times six times five times four times three times one. And that tells you the total number of permutations that are possible. And then you could discount the duplications where you have the reversing uh, sentence comparison, which has already been handled. So you could probably cut those permutations by half. And still have an inaccurate, uh, inaccurate. Uh, well, maybe not because let's say you said uh, Bob ran to the store, and then in comparison to Jane ran for her health. Then if you were comparing Jane ran for her health to Bob ran to the store, you might get a different probability versus if you said Bob ran to the store and compare that to, to Jane Redford Health. So I, I take that back. I don't think maybe you will need to have all the possible permutations. So lots of permutations. And um, it truly is amazing um, how our brain can group uh, things together. We can, for example, we can read a book and we do read lots of books. Um, and then we're expected to critically think about what we read. So we draw inference from sentences that we read. And, uh, but at the same time as we're, we're learning about characters, we're drawing emotional conclusions about each of the character, whether we like the character, whether we think the character in the book is honest, whether he's being deceived or whether he's very aware. Um, and also, you know, what are the goals of the book? You know, 
what are the things that objectives that the character is trying to achieve you know is he trying to achieve love is he trying to achieve wealth or is he just trying to survive or, or is he a victim of circumstance well there are many different aspects to the character that our characters that we when we read a book you know we put together so there's like a small little world of of a mental model that we're putting together of how these characters are interacting with each other. And then we draw conclusions based on how they interact. Well, what we can then take that mental model and, you know, later we can be watching a movie and we can see similarities. We say, oh, this book, this movie is so similar to uh, this, uh, this other book. Um, There was a, a movie or so that uh, I, I was watching, and I thought, "Oh, wow, that's so similar to another movie that I had seen." And uh, because it had a it had a, a certain feel to it, you know, it had a certain underlying, generalized, summarized theme. So when we think about things, a lot of times we think about it in highly summarized form. Like when you talk to technical people, they don't give you lots of technical jargon in terms of you know their descriptions of how they set up things. They don't give you the coefficients. They don't give you the learning rates. They don't give you the uh, uh, mean square error algorithms, uh, the loss functions, the optimization functions. They don't do that. I mean, that's, that's stuff that's supposed to be understood and, and uh, kind of obvious but uh, they do uh, um, they do give you uh, information uh, about what they're trying to do or you know how they're making money and and uh, you know those are those are um, they're, 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 those are things that are important. So they're, they're trying to figure out what's important, what you can understand, and what you might relate to. So there's a lot of context in when it comes to communication. They want to see if you're interested in what they're talking about because, you know, they don't want to have a rejection. And, uh, you know, there, there's also social acceptance. They want to be accepted as, as part of the cool group, you know. So... Um, you don't want to come across as being annoying or know-it-all or you know, type of things like that. And, and so there's a lot of context in how information is communicated. Now, I do spend a lot of time in DataCamp and I enjoy those lectures and they're very technical. And they'll explain, you know, why uh, uh, things are important and what the different parameters mean. And they do that in short bursts of like 15 minutes. And those are, uh, you know, those lectures are valuable because they give you some foundation to build on and then you can apply that to some of your existing model that you have in your business and see, you know, if, you, if it's useful. So that's a, always the underlying uh, theme that I, you know, that I say when it comes to business is finding things in machine learning and AI that are useful. Now, machine learning is going to be useful uh, pretty quick because you know the classifiers and the 
linear regressors are, are basically math models. And, you know, companies have been using statistics to do forecasting for years. So anything that's doing forecasting or, predict, or uh, classifying is going to have some level of usefulness. Um, but in the area of reinforcement learning, I think uh, that's an exciting field because it, it had, takes an environment and uh, you have an agent and that agent explores its environment and then it gets either a reward, it gets a, um, it returns back the, the state and the reward on that state and then makes a prediction on what the next state action should be. So it, it can, it uh, has certain actions that are, are permissible in, uh, um, in its environment and then uh, uses the deep learning network, the Keras network, to uh, make decisions and make predictions. And then it, it trains on the previous state's results and, um, and then it can replay that, those different states back into the net and train it. Um, what, what a do, thing about that that is that there is could be some duality to this is that you have one algorithm that's training and learning, and then when it gets you know to a certain level of of uh, efficiency, then it stores its weights, and then you have another agent that is pulling uh, those weights and uh, using it to actually do the performance. So you could have one that's training and learning and another one that's uh, uh, using those trained weights. So uh, the hive, you could say hive mind, I guess, has been used before in this podcast, but let's just say the collective knowledge of the group could be shared between the different agents. So one agent could could learn it and it can share its weights with other agents and then that helps it becomes more effective in environments that it's not aware of. So if another agent's been in this environment, you could have that classified and those weights stored as it learns from its environment. And so uh, then it would be a question of how many environments have the agent spanned or, or covered. And that's, and that's what we call experience. The more experience we get, the better we are at, at uh, recognizing uh, and, make, and responding correctly with the appropriate actions. So we know, like if we're driving in a, uh, if we're driving in a certain area, we know that where the speeds change, uh, speed limits, we know how to safely navigate uh, lane changes. And you know we're comfortable with uh, with those conditions, and we we're we're comfortable with our actions. And so we, as we get more familiar with that environment, our confidence levels go up in how to how to navigate those environments. Well, that's kind of the way um, Carpool works. So OpenAI, Jim, uh, we we talked about Enchain uh, yet a couple of days ago. But uh, they also open, um, AI has a, um, a graphical interface called Cartpole. And what Cartpole is, is uh, you have 
three actions. You have a stop action, you have a, a left or a right action, and your goal uh, is to balance the uh, pole. And so the pole will, can fall to the left or it can fall to the right, but as long as you can oscillate between left and right, uh, that you can balance the pole. Just so if you if you tried that in in real life, you would have more more directions to have to balance because you'd have left and right, but you would have also 360 degrees of other possible vectors that you would have to move in. Uh, to, and so you would you would focus on the top, and then you would move in those directions. So. We were, you know, here the machines reduce the possible vectors down to two, but you could, you could have um, up to 360 or, or more uh, angles, just if you were just using complete radiant angles, that, you know, a whole angles, not uh, fractional angles, you could, you could have uh, 360 degrees. But, you know, you, if you look at it, think about it, it could be, it could be an infinite number of, of degrees around that circle that you can move that hand. So you get, um, you have a, you generate a target vector and then you have a predicted vector and then you get a reward and you want to look to see uh, in the maximum reward that you get for your prediction. So you look at the difference between the predicted and the target and that tells you um, if you're getting close to being accurate. So as the machine gets better accuracy, its predictions are going to improve. And, uh, and then so then uh, the machine will make a prediction on the next state. So you get the current state resulting from the action it performed. And then the machine will make a prediction using the deep learning network on the next action. And then you look at the difference between the uh, action prediction and um, the target. And so based on the current and the previous state. And so then once you have those differences, that tells you if you're getting more accurate in your environment. So if it's getting optimizing its rewards. And then as you get to a certain level, you have a, a certain level of decay in the number of training episodes that you're gonna go through. So you have a replay and uh, you have a memory. So you have a memory and a replay capability and that replay um, is then fed into the network and it learns and then it trains on that replay and then uh, eventually as you get better and better efficiency you're going to have less data that you're replaying and so the model eventually reaches an optimum point and then that's what you call production and then that's released into production so it as machines will get faster at computation, they'll do more parallelism, quicker training cycles, then the reinforcement learning is going to be, uh, can move into possibly real time. So 
as it's exploring its new environment and it gets a new new uh, conditions and new actions possible in, to environment it can learn quickly and if it can be in near real time that uh, it'd be highly usable so in the 1990s their Carnegie Mellon had a self-driving car and originally the algorithm by uh, Palmer Blue was called Alvin and it he drove that from one side of the nation to the other with very little interaction but he had a student his name was Todd Jokum and I'm hoping to get him on as an interview uh, but he wrote the algorithm called Ralph and it drove across the he was able to get using a camera with 32 pixels by 32 pixels able to drive across the nation uh, with only about 2% human intervention. So it was very, uh, very accurate in its decision making. And uh, he, uh, he used a neural net to decide what was the road and also to detect where the lanes were and objects that were to the left or right of him and how to navigate uh, the lanes, which lane to, was open, which one lane was closed, and also whether or not um, the car in front of him was rapidly, the distance was rapidly changing so if the car, if the velocities of the car in front of him were slowing down and he had a, a very simple interface it was a graphical interface that was in the car and I also believe they used some sort of LIDAR because I, I saw in the video uh, that described this the self-driving car that they created that it did have LIDAR and he states that uh, Jokum states in his webpage that they did have GPS but it wasn't used for locating where the car was because the GPS at that time was not accurate enough. But they used it for detecting the velocity of the vehicle. So it did have GPS, but it was used for detecting velocity. And, uh, you know, then, then these algorithms out of Carnegie were quite famous uh, because they they led to uh, other students who became professors who influenced uh, students to to build cars for the DARPA challenge and um, and one of their cars uh, was able to uh, complete the Baja course and, and um, you know there were so many challenges that they had in completing that course it was really a technology marvel that the vehicle was able to navigate the roads and, and figure out the trajectories and then complete the course without uh, 
without flaw. So anyway, I'm looking forward to seeing if he'll come on and we'll do a 35 minute interview with him. He's quite famous and uh, we'll see what happens. Well, so that, that was kind of my experience with uh, reinforcement learning this week. And, uh, you know, next week I, I'm going to be thinking about uh, looking at more reinforcement learning where, you know, now I'm getting more of a better understanding of some of the usefulness of, of it and, and how to stage the reinforcement learning so that it can explore its environments. I've been thinking about different environments in business where you could apply um, rewards or punishment to see if the machine can find optimal paths. And maybe, you know, one that I've been thinking about is resource planning. So one of the problems you have with resource planning is you have to have a certain number of skilled workers to do a job then you need to figure out you know who would who rates good well enough to be put on certain jobs you know who would perform well enough and uh, you know having preferences to be on the team and then keeping uh, resources working enough that they're not losing money that they're able to make a good salary and but at the same time that they are able to complete work. So as you're, as you're uh, allocating resources, they're able to get work done and, and, uh, and the projects are on schedule. And if they get on schedule, then they, you know, they get uh, good performance ratings. And those are, are all, are all, all important in resource planning. So um, it's uh, figuring out the formulas, I guess you could say, to figuring out how the resources are allocated could be kind of like a very sensitive area, and but yet it might be something that could be useful. And, you know, if you could build the software, uh, possibly you could, you could uh, market that software to other resource planners that are dealing with complex matrices. And I, and I would say most, for the most part, it's not that difficult. You have a group of people, you have certain labor types, or you have construct carpenters, you have plumbers, you know, everything is somewhat segmented and then they have different skill ratings which usually are based on their uh, their credentials and then certifications what they're capable of doing and uh, and then you have time and budgets so you have a certain amount of money to get the work done and you have a certain amount of time to get the money, uh, project done and then you're going to try to uh, allocate the resources in such a configuration that you can get the, the maximum, the optimum work done. And that's going to be in a constant change. And that's one thing that any project manager, it's, it's very difficult because you're 
you're managing multiple projects and you have a certain resource pool and you're constantly having to pull uh, resource away from existing projects when you do that is very expensive because there's a learning curve to bringing the resource up to speed and and, uh, and so shifting around is is difficult and sometimes you can ask your resource to do multiple things uh, over a certain time period maybe allocating a certain percentage of their time on one project and a certain percentage on another while not compromising on the quality of the project. So there's this balancing act uh, that goes on between project, projects and resources that's is, uh, in a kind of a, a flux or in a matrice of, of change. And so um, there are some challenges that way. Well, um, that's just one idea. I've been starting to think about some more. And uh, another uh, aspect of this is, uh, you know, the figuring out what the rules are. And so maybe you don't know the rules. Let's say you don't know the rules. And all you know is what the desired outcome is. So just like the pole balance, cart pole balancing algorithm, your, your goal is to keep the pole upright for the longest amount of time. That's the end objective. And so maybe what the objective uh, for resource planning is to get the highest quality. So you put the best people on the best projects. You know, maybe that's your your goal. Or maybe your goal is to increase the amount of profit that you make by getting the most work done in the shortest period of time and so by you know having the best configurations you improve the outcomes and so you could look at uh, you maybe you could look at what were the best configurations and the outcomes and the neural net could learn from that so when it sees something that's similar um, comparable it says this this team did really well last time uh, why not use them again? So you have a preference in your configurations and you pull people based on previous performance. So you put your best teams on your best projects. And uh, and so this lot of the assumptions of resource planning is going to, will change because the neural net will will find uh, will find signal and it will find you know the groups that performed well together because there might be, you know, teams that work really well together uh, because of their personality types and their leadership management role. You can have a really good manager who's on top of things and, and uh, the workers are really excited to work for them and, you know, they're doing good work. Um, and all these things can come together to affect performance. So it will find those signals. It'll find that it'll find that pattern that uh, is useful. And 
it's easy to see, you know, in some ways. Uh, when you look at uh, employee churn, you can see certain patterns, like in uh, PTO patterns, like if there's certain higher frequencies of PTO usage, you know, maybe things are slowing down. Maybe, uh, you know, it could be a change in the time of the year. Um, maybe they're, people are getting sick, you know, whatever. Um, but there's something that maybe is causing a variance and that discovery of the invariance is, is important because it can suggest that there's a pattern that's emerging. And uh, so those are, are things that uh, to be considered. Well, uh, you know, I, I look at uh, um, where logistic regression has been used also. One is uh, equipment maintenance. And so they're looking, looking at equipment maintenance. There is certain trend lines that you can establish and uh, based on a certain trend line, you can figure out at what point you think that the equipment might fail. So I ran some uh, queries and figured out what the, the mean time or figured out the amount of elapsed time since maintenance occurred on some equipment and uh, looked to see if there was uh, you know some patterns like if there was an increasing pattern of time between maintenance so like if maintenance wasn't occurring you know as frequently as it did in the past that could suggest that there was maybe money is getting tight and uh, equipment isn't being maintained on a uh, is being pushed off you know just kind of like when you're short on cash you're not you know you're not replacing parts in your car that could fail like alternators or starters or you know or, uh, doing your your transmission flush so there there's uh, maintenance issues uh, maybe you're going longer between oil changes so that's what I was thinking is you know looking at a pattern then put it into bar graphs and run it over uh, you know different time span and just see if there was a general pattern and then you know connect the moving average to it and just look at that moving average to see if your elapsed time is increasing are decreasing and uh, um, I could see for some of the equipment that it looked like that some of the equipment was getting it looked like that the the span of time was increasing more uh, because it started off over the last few years of them tracking it I was able to see that it was kind of upward migrating on the elapsed time uh, but you know I it would be interesting to feed that into a logistic regression and, and try to, you know, get an idea if if uh, if the mean time between failure was going to occur and and put put that into uh, a gather data on the environment that the equipment was in and uh, and then feed that to the logistic regression and make a, a prediction at what point the equipment is about to fail and 
because when equipment is down, it costs money. You have to go get a replacement equipment or you have to uh, wait until the equipment's fixed. And so if you know that there's a certain number of hours of operation that the equipment fails, as the equipment approaches that critical hour of operation, then you have routine maintenance that occurs. And, uh, you know, there's a cost associated with that. And so perhaps what that was indicating is that that uh, they're deferring some of those costs, pushing out those limits. Uh, so setting the, they're saying, well, okay, instead of the 500 days, we'll go 600 days and then we'll maintain it because then that will defer some of our immediate costs. And so keeping the equipment costs down might be the objective. So there's a balancing act between the failure rate and the maintenance. And so if we can figure out maybe what that critical balance is uh, in terms of, you know, put it in some statistical modeling and then, and then um, also do some simulation on what would happen if you increase the maintenance time by 20%. How does that affect the number of failures? So if you could figure out, calculate what the failure rates, how the failure rates are changing, then that could tell you also the amount of costs that are associated with that failure and why, you know, justify why having more routine maintenance uh, would reduce down your cost to loss of equipment in operation and also uh, the degree of repairs that are required due to the lack of maintenance. So maintenance uh, prediction is an area that uh, logistic regression was popular in. A lot of times what they, they were doing is they were looking at things like uh, heat exchange pumps and they were looking at the temperature and the humidity and they were gathering number of different factors, maybe conductivity in the air, and things that would affect the equipment, and they were gathering that on a routine basis, and storing it in maybe a data lake, and then they could they could query that data, and they could uh, then build trend lines on it, and make predictions on, based on the conditions of the environment, when they predicted that failure would occur. And, you know, uh, and so just like fraud detection, you know, you're not going to have a large percentage of failures, but you're, those, the failures that you have um, could be expensive. Let's say you were, you had a failure on a caterpillar that could be expensive. And, uh, or if you had a failure on a uh, ATV, that may not be as expensive. But uh, you can figure out the probabilities of those failures and then, and then weigh in on the, on the cost. And then that could be part of your justification for expenditures of using the data science to to manage your
maintenance. And so, you know, like if you're maintaining a few million dollars with equipment, it may be different versus if you're maintaining billions of dollars worth of equipment in high usage scenarios where failure is you know, could be uh, reduced by better predictive analytics. So that's uh, something I was looking at this week and thinking about and uh, doing a little bit of analysis on it. Those are those are kind of some of the thoughts I had this week as I was working, and hopefully next week will be better as I I get more thoughts come to me. And you know, it's, it's like uh, something I was reading is you don't really understand something until you worked in it, and that's one thing I've discovered about business is. Yeah, you can learn a lot of algorithms and you can learn a lot of theory, but until you've actually worked in the uh, uh, technology, you don't really understand how uh, how the challenges, uh, how challenging it's going to be. So I'll uh, sign off and talk to you later.